story of the Samaritan woman, the woman at the well, uh, looking at how we react to the Savior. And I was thinking about this after watching the Super Bowl, and you see people uh, in those $1.8 million boxes, and you realize that there's a host of people that are completely out of touch uh, with reality. And there's nothing like seeing people that are out of touch with reality. Uh, they move around thinking there's a different set of rules for them uh, than the rest of the world. And when you look at the, the Jews at this time in their history, the Jews were struggling uh, with that kind of disposition, this kind of removed from reality resistant when it came uh, to religion and God. They looked down on the world around them. Uh, they saw themselves as religiously superior. Uh, they were God's select, which they were. They were God's chosen people. Uh, but they started thinking that they lived by a different set of rules, having lost any real concern or connection uh, to anyone outside of themselves. They had been given the oracles of God. Through them would come the Messiah. But they had become hardened and lost sight of their own need for salvation. And as a whole, they miss the Savior reacting in, in collective rejection of Him, and they neglected their calling to be a light to the nations. They lost sight that God's salvation was eternal in nature, uh, not political. God's redemption would be for all people and not just them. The Messiah was coming to reach the world, not just give them their temporal desires or their political reign. And Jesus makes that worldwide mission clear with his journey through Samaria. Uh, this beautiful narrative unfolds with seeming rehearsed timing, uh, yet the God of the universe needs no rehearsal as he perfectly orchestrates the movement of every person. Uh, Jesus and company have headed north from Judea, uh, from Jerusalem. They're going back home to the region of Galilee. And to get home, they walk through the region of Samaria. Here, Jesus had stopped at Jacob's well to rest. His disciples went to a nearby town uh, to procure some food, something to eat. And while Jesus waited at the well, a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus engaged her in conversation, just as God had planned it. Jesus then moved that conversation along uh, to the point of stating directly to her that he is the Messiah. He said, I that speak unto thee am and a lot of times it says, am he, but basically he said, I that speak unto you, I am. I'm God and I'm the Messiah, telling her that he is God divine and he is the promised redeemer. Well, as he is saying that, and we're in a, we're in a narrative here, and so sometimes we, we read scripture and especially read the gospels and forget that it is telling the story of Christ's life here on earth, his whole ministry. And so in the middle of that statement, as he's saying to this woman, I am the Messiah, and I'm God. The disciples come back. They walk in on that statement. John 4, 27a says, And upon this came his disciples. Upon that statement, this clear directive from him that he is God and he is the Messiah, they walk in, something they have not heard him say directly. They know, John the Baptist talked about it, he's alluded to it, but they have never heard Jesus say about himself, I am the Messiah and I am God, in that direct, clear format. But what will each of these hearing parties do with that truth? How will they react to the declared Savior? How will they engage with it? What will be each person's purpose? And that's 27 through 30, we get that. So, and upon this, we remember, upon the statement that I'm the Messiah and I'm God, came his disciples. 
and marveled that he talked with the woman. Yet no man said, what seekest thou, or why talkest thou with her? In other words, they didn't engage her. They didn't ask her, what in the world are you doing? And they didn't go to Jesus and say, what in the world are you doing? They marveled about this physical conversation taking place and said nothing. The woman then, after hearing the statement, left her water pot and went her way into the city and saith to the men, come see a man which told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came unto him. So what did the Jewish disciples do, the ones that are following Jesus at this time? And this is, this is before their, their formal call to be his disciples and followers. This is the, the early part of his ministry that the other gospels don't record. What did they do? Well, they marveled. They heard him say that he is God and he's the Messiah, and they marveled about him talking to a woman caught up in their world and culture. And beyond that, they remained quiet. Now, it's helpful to note that Jesus talking to a woman was considered taboo for a rabbi. Rabbinic teaching of that day was to not prolong conversation with a woman. And I quote this, I didn't write it, there were better things to be doing. That's what they thought. And husbands should be straight, look straight ahead. Don't even look sideways at this moment. And it was about studying the law. Uh, they viewed those conversations as bringing evil on themselves. And I want us to get the weight of that tradition, uh, which sits there. Even the disciples would likely have hesitated to talk to her at all. They would have, though not being rabbis, they would have not engaged her. Uh, to get the sense of the weight of this thinking, I want to turn to a narrative from the Babylonian Talmud, which records this story. A rabbi, Jose, the Galilean, was traveling on the road. He met Bruri, the wife of Rabbi Meir, and asked her, which way must we take to the city of Lud? She answered, thou Galilean fool, did not our sages say that thou shouldest not converse much with a woman? Thou shouldest have asked, which way to Lud? In other words, this tradition sat so heavy that a wife of a rabbi reprimanded another rabbi for asking a question in a long or more polite format because he should have just said, which way to Lud? And, and the idea is this, you don't talk with a woman. As you read through the history of that time, a rabbi would rarely talk to his wife in public. He would never talk to any other woman at all, never would cross this line, never would even think about doing this. And as I kind of noted, and hopefully you get the weight of the tradition, it wasn't just a simple thing on, on the surface. This went deep into what they thought and what they did. Yet the disciples at least hold their tongue, respecting Jesus enough to not question him about speaking to her, even if it was unclear why he was doing so. Because again, remember, they saw him as a teacher, as a rabbi. But they also gave no thought to the eternal. They just remained in a temporal mindset. And I want to remind us of what Jesus has just said. He said, I am, which is the, when I say bombastic, that is the name of God. That is claiming deity without any question. And he says, I'm God, and without any apology, I'm the Messiah. I am the Christ. This warranted some thought, some connection, some response, yet they did not engage with the eternal point at all. They remained tucked into their culture, tucked into this physical conversation, consumed the idea that he's talking 
to a woman. And this whole temporal mindset is further made clear by the next dialogue where they remain fixated on him eating something. In complete contrast, and I want us to see this because we have two people, two groups of people, seeing or hearing the same thing. Jesus makes a bold statement, I'm the Messiah and I'm God, without a doubt. The disciples hear it and they remain fixated on the fact that he's talking to a woman, especially a woman of Samaria. In complete contrast, she went and she witnessed tactfully. She moved to tell her community with urgency. It says here she left her water jar, went away into town, and talked to the people. And keep in mind, when she encountered Christ, she was coming to the well for a reason. She was there to get water. <coughs> what does she do when she learns that Jesus, the person she's talking to, is God and is the Messiah? Well, she forgets what she was doing. Not because she's forgetful, but because she leaves her task, her physical work, undone so that she can go share the good news, she can go share the gospel. And she shows wisdom and discernment as she approached the people who have previously scorned her. Don't forget who she is. Don't forget how the community viewed her and why she was at the well at the middle of the day anyway. She's gathering water because she doesn't want to be around the community because she's scorned, <coughs> because she's mocked. Because her lifestyle is such that people look down on her. She leaves what she's doing to go back to talk to the same people that would have perpetuated that scorn. And she does so with tact and discernment. Notice she wisely says a statement followed with a question to engage their minds. <clears throat> if she had come out and said, I found the Messiah, there's not a single person that would have believed her in that town. And I want you to rewind back to what I just said about talking to a woman and how a woman would have been perceived there. She would not have been able <coughs> to teach, her, teach them at all. They would not accept teaching from a woman. They would not accept teaching specifically from her. And so what does she do? She tells them what took place. I bumped into a guy at a well who told me everything I've ever done. <coughs> and then she asked the question, is this not the Christ? And and I want you to realize even her form in asking the question, it doesn't come through in English as it is in Greek. In Greek, she uses a word that kind of implies that they could say no to this. It wasn't a leading question that said, well, obviously it has to be the Christ. But instead, she actually asked the question or, or basically launched the idea. Could this be the Christ? No, definitely wouldn't be. The idea would not be to lead them at all. But she does mention the name of the Messiah and so in a, in a very tactful and intelligent way, she shares the facts and then she connects those facts to Christ in a way that that group of people, those men, would accept it. And so right away they're processing this and they move. And so they are, instead of just tied to the fact that someone knew what she did, she has moved them to the bigger reality so that they can connect and see the Messiah. Her approach worked, and a large segment of the town is heading out now to meet Jesus. And this story breaks down uh, completely because you, you, what you have is Jesus talking to a woman, and the disciples are in town. And then they come back, and there's an interface where the disciples hear what Jesus says at the same time that the woman hears it. They respond in a physical, temporal way. She responds with an eternal mindset. She moves urgently to go tell the town. Now the, the whole story is going to shift back to the well. 
We're going to shift back to seeing how the disciples interact with Christ. But before we do that, I want us to think a little bit about what took place. Here is the woman taking her new purpose and engaging with it. And the question I have for us is how do we engage with that reality? How do we engage with the realization that Jesus is God and he's the savior of the world? How are we responding? Uh, Do we stand marveling yet remaining silent? Maybe we stand marveling and, and we're even smirking about those who believe. Maybe we stand marveling, but we're silent towards those who do not know. Maybe we stand marveling, but we're caught up in our own world. Or do we move with urgency and priority to share and connect the truth (coughs) with everyone we know? Because we know they need to know him. Well, while the Samaritan woman heads to town and shares her interaction with the Redeemer, the disciples begin pressing Jesus to eat. They are going to remain focused on the material, the material things, which gives Jesus a perfect opportunity to highlight the right priority. And that's verses 31 through 34. And we see all these connective words because <coughs> we saw that they came in on the conversation. This says, in the meanwhile, his disciples prayed him saying, Master, eat. But he said unto them, I have meat to eat that you know not of. Therefore, said the disciples one to another, hath any man brought him aught to eat? And again, the idea is there's no way someone brought him something to eat. This, is, this isn't feasible. Jesus saith unto them, my meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. The disciples misunderstood the spiritual context of his remarks. Just like Nicodemus did when he's talking to him. And let's be honest, just like the woman did when she heard Jesus talking originally. And so they remained in a material mindset, yet Jesus was looking to connect them to a principle they should have known, one that was taught by Moses, who stated in Deuteronomy 8, 3b, the end of uh, verse 3, it says, man doth not live by bread only, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of the Lord doth man live. And Jesus was trying to teach them something as they come back and they, they missed the point. They blaze past the spiritual reality of this is God and the Messiah, and he's stating it boldly to a Samaritan woman. As they ignore that reality and keep on in the conversation, they keep going with what they went out to do. They went to get food. They come back with the food. Now they want him to eat, right? We just did a a job, and we want you to follow through. And Jesus then turns the conversation to the spiritual side of things, which they miss, but he's trying to teach them something. Jesus was teaching them the importance of spiritual values over physical ones. What is the priority? And Christ is saying, my priority is for you to focus on the spiritual. Jesus came to do the Father's will and always did it. It was that which sustained him. That was his priority. But we tend to be dull to that truth. We have found something else, usually ourselves, to be the priority And so we are easily distracted from what should be first. We are sadly unfulfilled in accomplishing God's will and purpose. And I want us to recognize something because Christ experienced thirst. Christ experienced being tired. Christ experienced being hungry. So far, he's gotten no drink, no food, and very little rest. And he's telling the disciples, and and we, we can 
in some ways miss what he's saying because we over-spiritualize it. But he's saying, I feel fulfilled. I have gained energy. I have gained um, sustenance from the fact that I'm serving God the Father's will. I'm, I'm following through at what needs to be done. There's a reality that we're supposed to be fulfilled as well as we fulfill God's will. But sometimes we are not, or oftentimes we are not, because we're too busy pursuing our own will. Yet for the disciples to gain a correct priority, they would need to have the correct perspective. So Jesus continues by lifting their heads up so they could see with eternal eyes and get working for eternal fruit. Say not ye, there are yet four months, and then cometh harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are white already to harvest. And he that reapeth receiveth wages and gathereth fruit unto life eternal, that, that both he that soweth and he that reapeth may rejoice together. And herein is that saying true, one soweth and another reapeth. I sent you to reap that whereon ye bestowed no labor. Other men labor, and ye are entered into their labors. Now, there's a lot of ways to look at the four months to harvest. Uh, there's guys and commentators, and uh, through history, people have said it, it's a local saying. It was a proverb uh, that has been now forgotten or lost to time, that it's four months to harvest. Uh, some people wouldn't agree with that because it takes six months to get to harvest, but there, there's a, a sense that this could be a saying that the harvest is in the future. Could be referring to the actual time left to harvest, placing this in December or January timeframe. Either way, the point was the same. Jesus was having them see the eternal harvest of the approaching town. See, two things are happening as the story goes on. He's talking to the lady while the disciples are getting food. They come back with the food. There's an interchange. She goes back to town. She's talking to people in town, and they're now heading out to see Christ. And so as he's dialoguing now with the disciples about food and priority, and he's trying to get them to see a perspective, and, and again, I talk about the timing of everything just orchestrated perfectly, it, it, like it's been rehearsed, like it's a play, yet God doesn't need to rehearse, and he is in control of all time and all processes. And so Jesus is turning them, and he's saying, look at the fields. And they would have looked up, and they would have seen the people coming, walking above the standing grain, the field then white already to harvest, making clear that they need to be ready to reap eternal fruit. See, if you looked at the physical crop, the four months to harvest statement, there's time to relax. Because after you've sown the seed and it's growing and you're waiting for harvest to come, this is the time when you wait. Growth would methodically come. You can't rush the harvest. You sow, it grows, and now there's four months more before we're going to reap the harvest. There was no need for urgency. We can sit back is the mentality. Not, not in a negative way. It's very common, right? If you're going to sow something, you have to wait till it grows and wait till it bears its fruit. So there's no need for urgency in the meantime. But Jesus is saying, when you look at the spiritual crop, though, there was a need for immediacy. Jesus goes on, he tells the disciples, it's like wages have been paid to the reapers. That's what he says. That, that, and in that culture, you didn't pay people 
until they finished or at least started the job. And so what Jesus is saying, you're looking at the grain. He's using a physical illustration. And it's green, and it's growing, and it's time to wait. There's no urgency at this moment. You wouldn't pay a reaper. You wouldn't pay anybody. You're just, you're just looking out there. And then he says, but the reapers have been paid. When you look at the spiritual side, and what he's trying to imply is that you only pay when things are happening, and he wanted them to grasp something because the disciples are willing to sit back and just listen. And what Christ is showing in this moment is, yes, they need to learn, but they need to be working in his fields. He wanted them to grasp the urgency of the mission at hand. You are not waiting. You are not sitting here, but instead there is a harvest to be reaped. They must be ready because spiritually they get to reap where others have sown. The seed of truth has been sown here, even though they have not taken part in it. Sowing had taken place, and now they would share in reaping the spiritual fruit. And he shares that the one that sows, and this is a principle we see uh, from Paul and from others, as you read through the New Testament, some sow, some water, but God brings the increase. I want to bring back John the Baptist. If you think back to where Jesus was in Judea, and when we talked about that a couple weeks ago, he was north in Samaria. That's where he was ministering. He was among these people. And as we saw at the end of chapter 3, he was preaching Jesus the Messiah. Remember, his disciples come back and say, hey, more people seem to be following Jesus than you. And he says, he must increase, I must decrease. And he, he literally, where Jesus is preaching the message of repentance, he's now preaching the message of the gospel, looking forward to what Christ would do. Leon Morris notes, their work in this very area had prepared the way. John the Baptist and disciples had been speaking to Samaritans. But you go further, who else had prepared the way? Well, they read the Torah, they read the Pentateuch, and so Moses had prepared the way. Jesus himself had prepared the way. The believing Samaritan woman had prepared the way. So Jesus says, look up and see the harvest approaching, a harvest that they have missed so far. They needed to see what Jesus saw, what Jesus had sown, John the Baptist had sown, Moses had sown, and now that harvest, that, that, that crop is walking toward them, and they get to glean the fruit. But they needed to see it. And that begs the question for us, do we see the harvest? Or I think worded a better way, are we seeing what Jesus sees? Do you look at people the way Christ looks at people? Because we tend to be like the disciples. We're very physically minded. We don't lift up our head. We don't look up. We don't see what's there. We don't see as Christ sees. And so we miss the harvest that's been prepared. And he tells us, others are going to have sown and you're going to get to reap. And so we aren't to be surprised by the fact that there's a harvest to be reaped. And he makes sure we understand at all times it's not like we say, well, this is seed time, and now it's harvest time. There's, a, there's a, a weaving together of those two. But to do that, to see that, to participate in it, we must be seeing what Jesus sees. Because he has a harvest prepared. He has people. 39 through 42, it says, And many of the Samaritans, and notice the use of the word many, and many of the Samaritans of that city believed on him, 
for the saying of the woman, which testified, he told me all that ever I did. So when the Samaritans were come unto him, they besought him that he would tarry with them, and he abode there two days. And so they come out, many have believed. They petition Christ to come back to town and teach in their town. And then he, he goes back and he stays there two days. And then we hear another many, and many more believed because of his own word, and said unto the woman, Now we believe, not because of thy sayings, for we have heard him ourselves, and know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. While the disciples were learning from Jesus, the woman had gathered a multitude. We started with the contrast. Here is the disciples who have been a lot of them following John the Baptist and now are following Jesus Christ. They've heard him teach. They've walked through Jerusalem. They've seen him cleanse the temple. Uh, they've seen him do many signs. They have got to know that a rabbi has come to talk to Jesus, a leading teacher in Israel, and Christ has walked through that conversation with them. But when they hear him boldly say he's God and he's the Messiah, they sit there. They're consumed with the physical. They're wondering about their culture. They're wondering about people eating. This woman instead goes in and she's gathered a multitude, many that believed and, and they have come to Jesus and they want to know him personally. And how wonderful though to see her radically changed life and how effective it was in bringing others to Christ. She shared her testimony and it moved a community. One that had scorned her. And what did it move the community to do? Did it move them to guilt did it move them to changing their opinion about her? There's nothing in there that talks about that. No, her testimony moved a community to see the Savior. She pointed to Christ, which is what we're supposed to do as believers. Without her witness, the town would not have connected with Jesus. Yet they needed to go beyond secondhand acquaintance and know him for themselves, which they did. They believed and affirmed Christ from their own personal renewal. They saw him clearly as the Savior of the world, their Redeemer, and they let her know. Yet as D.A. Carson notes, in case we think they're demeaning the woman, because that's how we read it. Oh, now they're just shunning her again. They're, they're, they're taking a chance to dig at her in this moment. They're, they're not making this point to disparage her testimony, but instead to confirm it. They've heard for themselves and have judged her witness to be true. Because as Leon Morris notes, there must be personal knowledge of Christ if there is to be an authentic Christian experience. They needed to see for themselves. They needed to encounter Christ for themselves. Her testimony was used by God to draw this community, but ultimately their faith and trust had to be in Him, not in her. And so we see them affirming their faith. We see them saying to her, we know him personally. We have believed in Jesus Christ for forgiveness of sins. I put here as a question, have you authentically and personally believed on Jesus Christ for salvation? Are you one of his people? We all sincerely pray that you are. We pray that you can know sincerely and redemptively the Savior of the world. Uh, but there's an interesting anomaly in this closing portion. The fact that the Samaritans invited a Jewish rabbi to teach them, that is completely countercultural, which we see in every interaction with Christ and the Samaritans up to this point has been countercultural. As you read through the Gospels, and I think it's going to be in John, there's a time when he runs through Samaria and the Samaritans reject him. 
This is not a standard practice for the Samaritans, but here in this moment, in this situation, people that would typically mock a Jewish rabbi. There was a story, again, in some of the Talmuds that talked about a rabbi coming through Samaria on his way to Jerusalem and met a rabbi that was a Samaritan, and the Samaritan says, why don't you worship here on this glorious mountain where they worshiped instead of going to that dunghill of Jerusalem? Just so you know how they thought of each other, it was reciprocal. It wasn't just the Jews that hated the Samaritans. The Samaritans definitely thought less of the Jews. And so it is not normal for a whole community to ask a Jewish rabbi, because that's how they originally perceived him, to come teach in their town. Yet it shows their confidence in him. It proves who he is in, in a way you see that he's God, that he is the Messiah, because here is uh, two cultures that don't come together, and yet they're reaching out here. But it also shows the graciousness of Jesus Christ, which had me thinking, would they see the same graciousness in us? Because as we look at all the nuances of the story, we see, and, and I think we learn and can learn from the, from the woman, how she went with urgency to her community, but when she engaged with her community, she did so with grace and tact. She did so in a way that she would highlight the gospel, not take away from the gospel. I'm afraid that too many of us, when we share truth, we share it in such a horrific way and a horrific light that we're bringing no help. But also look at Jesus Christ, and as he is reaching to these people, his graciousness allows for an audience of two days. And what is the fruit of that? Many more believed because of this. See, this particular Samaritan town encountered Jesus and understood and called him the Savior of the world, which is a fitting title as we find Jesus engaging in what we would call cross-cultural evangelism, setting a pattern for his church to follow. This journey through Samaria has brought outsiders non-Jews, people looked down upon into the kingdom of God. A writer from another era remarked about this, saying this, and so what was hidden from the wise and understanding Nicodemus is revealed to these spiritual babes, and while scribes and Pharisees stand aside, the pagan world flocks into the kingdom. We don't know and understand 100% how God and his infinite wisdom works, but here is a Samaritan town, and in a large masses putting their trust in Jesus Christ. Yet it's, it was no accident. When a woman who was lost in her sins encountered the Messiah, when he made it known to her, her purpose changed completely. She left her water pot to connect her sphere of influence to the eternal truth she had just met and recognize that. That's what her community represented. Her community is your brothers and sisters, her community are your cousins and your uncles and your aunts. Her community are your co-workers. Her community was friends, acquaintances from the past. What she did was she encountered Jesus Christ and her purpose changed, and she went back to her community, her sphere of influence, her family members, her kids, her brothers, her sisters, you name it, across the board. She went to her sphere of influence because she needed to share eternal truth with them. Do we show the same purpose? And I use that word on purpose, the word show, not have, because I think all of us would say we have the same purpose. The question is, do you show 
the same purpose. Do you act upon it? And while she was reaching her community, Jesus was teaching the disciples that their priorities should be beyond the physical. Their sustenance should be doing God's perfect will. And to do that, they would need to have God's perspective. They would need to see what Jesus saw. And this is kind of a central question to the whole message, this whole story, this portion of the story. Do we see what Jesus sees? As his ambassadors, we're supposed to. That is our calling. That is our purpose. We're supposed to see what Jesus sees. We're supposed to act as Jesus would act. We're supposed to imitate our Savior. That is what we're supposed to do. Do we see what Jesus sees? Do we find fulfillment in doing the Father's will? Because there is a harvest, not of money and material things, not of winning an argument, not of luxury and not of relaxation, not of vacation. Instead, there are people, his people, a harvest that must be reaped. And as believers, we should be at work in his fields, not thinking about work, not talking about work, not getting close to people working. We are supposed to be at work in his fields. But are we? Are we working in his field? Are we reaping the harvest that we're supposed to be seeing if we see things as Jesus sees them? Mm -hmm.